Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 234, top 10 older games we played in 2019. We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backers, Michael and Tim. You guys rock. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. My friend, we are back for yet another episode of Cardboard Goodness. We are talking about board games, and in particular, we are trying to cover everything going on in board gaming, even at sometimes if it happens to be insanely abstract and edged and orange for some particular reason. (laughs) I could not possibly understand what you are talking about. Please elaborate. (laughs) Well, since you've been living under several gigantic, ridiculous rocks that don't receive Wi-Fi, if you don't know, or if you have not come near social media in the last couple of, I guess, days, and now it's moving on to weeks, Board Game Geek, the, so to speak, ultimate site for board gaming, had a redesign. Now, they redesigned their internal pages quite some time ago. Not really a super redesign, but kind of a bit of an update. And recently, I think as recent as last week, they updated their front page. And once again, not a complete redesign, just a little sprucing up here and there. It's mostly the same. But in particular, what had everyone talking was they unveiled their new logo, and I guess their new kind of like mascot, so to speak. Uh, previously, it was, I believe, Ernie the Geek, who is this kind of blonde haired guy with glasses kind of running off with board games. And now it's a very abstract, edged, orange, red, neon, somewhat cut out version, possibly of his head, if it's from a certain perspective. And yeah. So that's a thing, and no one had anything to say about it, and life went on. Yeah, no, it's I don't even know why we're bringing it up. No, it's board gamers didn't care. It's fine. Oh, no. <laughs> <sighs> man, as, as, like I work in marketing online, and mostly I work with like big companies, old companies that don't do a lot of rebranding and updates and stuff. But uh-huh. I've, I've dabbled in it enough to know that if you change even a couple of pixels on anything that anybody has any relationship to at least half of everybody who is potentially engaged with that is going to freak out. It's just a rule of thumb. So I guess from what I'm saying is you just have to ignore it because they're going to do it no matter what you do. I have some compassion for the people who did have a problem with the logo. I do branding, I guess, professional branding for students and for professionals and your brand does matter because it's your public image and I've done graphic design and art and art and design as we've talked about especially in board gaming is very important and myself and I'm even you and Anthony to some level we will criticize a board game cover even though for both of us it's mostly about the mechanics so when I got to see this really odd cutout for me personally it really didn't do anything for me. I was, I wouldn't say I was angry or annoyed by it, but I was just like, huh, uh, uh, uh. 
But yeah. obviously, a lot of people were really, as you mentioned, very connected, and especially board gamers. They are very connected to Board Game Geek as we are. So I appreciate their, you know, desire to express their displeasure. But I think, as you're mentioning here, it got to a level which I think surprised everybody. Yeah, it was it was vitriolic, you know, like, you know, that thing that happens whenever Facebook does it like a refresh and it lasts for mm-hmm. like 12 hours. But everybody melts sure. down every post on your Facebook feed is just like, this is horrible. I'm going to cancel my account. I don't care. And then like 24 hours later, nobody cares. This was that, but like a week long. And it, for some people, it still has not ended. And I agree with you. The new logo it doesn't mean anything. If you look at this and you don't know what the old logo was, it's just a weird orange blob. But yes, I I just, it's so much energy people are putting out. Like, I get it. I agree with them too, to some degree. I just, I don't have the energy for it. I don't know. Maybe it's the dad in me. I'm just like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, we do a board game podcast where we criticize a nitpick thing about board games. So I can't, come down really that hard on them i i appreciate and i think a lot of it comes out of love i don't think a lot of it comes out of just being a jerk i do believe it comes out of love and and care for the hobby and bgg is a lot of the how would you say it the flag holder the torch carrier for board gaming so when they see something odd and weird and it looks like it was done very cheaply people take that personally which once again I get, I don't, like you said, understand the energy behind it, but it is disappointing considering the fact that we did wait so long for the changes there. But nonetheless, there is a new logo on Board Game Geek. So once again, if you have been living under several rocks and you would like to figure out what this shape happens to be and what it does for you, uh, check it out. I you know, like the fact that they're updating. It just, it's not my artistic taste whatsoever. So Anthony, now that we have discussed the great issues of our time and discussed the philosophical properties and principles behind all that, let's move on to some less important matters, I guess. But you know what? For us, they're extremely important. You've been running some fantastic contests on our with our patreon backers so why don't you tell us something about that and bring us back to the uh, wholesome goodness that is quality branding there quality branding we are bga we give away games it's what we do there you go (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i a lot of the recent contests you guys know we have a patreon set up if you are a backer at any level on the patreon you have the opportunity to enter these contests that we run every single week from thursday until monday Uh, We record Monday night around 8 o'clock Eastern. That's when the contest ends. So you have all weekend, basically, to enter these things. The last few of them have been photographs, uh, components, things like that. I reached out to everybody on the Slack group because I wanted some new kind of creative ideas. Uh, And I (laughs) they joked that maybe I wasn't glad that I did that, but I was very glad that I did that because I have a now list of about a dozen or so different contest ideas. Um, special thanks to Amy and Martin who had half a dozen ideas each among them and like ideated off each other. It was really cool. So I took the first of those courtesy of Amy, which was a scavenger hunt. Uh, I put up eight different questions and basically it was find this thing in a board game and tell us where it comes from. You don't have to get a picture or pull out your own game and take a photo. I was trying to make this a little bit easier, a little more accessible for everybody. 
Uh, so things like give me a component featuring a four-legged animal. That one's fairly easy. Um, a game coin with a hole in it, a building block that isn't a cube, a component that's not made of paper, wood, or plastic. And the result was a lot of these were different, which is pretty cool. That's what I was hoping for. Congratulations do go out to Martin, who was the first person to answer all eight of the questions with something that was accurate <laughs> to what I was asking. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm probably going to publish these in some format in the coming days, weeks, um, as well as upcoming contests. We have a few cool new ones uh, that I'm working on. But things like, you know, of course, if you ask for a four-legged animal, someone would say the sheeple from Agricola, obviously. But then someone else says the Monopoly dog, which of course is correct, but is not something that would jump to my mind. Um, the Dinosaur Island, Dino Meeples, Animal Plan Animal, the Coyote from Spirits of the Wild, right? It's just a broad range of people's experiences in gaming, which is pretty fun. So we're going to try to do more stuff like that. It gives everybody an opportunity to enter, even if you're not necessarily, you know, up to date on all the different components and pieces from like the obscure games on my shelves. And we got a decent number of entries and I'm pretty excited about that. So to everybody who entered, thank you. I uh, hope you had fun with that. To everybody who offered ideas for contests, thank you as well. We're going to use them. So I uh, appreciate your uh, contributions to the podcast and uh, to Martin, congratulations for winning. So yeah, keep your eyes open Thursday around noon Eastern. We'll have a new one of these up for you. And if you'd like to join in on the big board game giveaway Patreon contest, check us out on patreon.com slash BGA. There are brand new episodes for our Patreon backers. There's a Slack group where you can connect with us. There's articles. There's a whole bunch of stuff up there. We would love for you to join us. And thank you so much for your support, whether you're backing us on Patreon or you're letting new people know about BGA. All right, Anthony, that's everything that's going on with BGA. Let's get on to our question of the week. All right, yeah, question of the week this week. After last week's explosion of capitalism uh, in our post-Gen Con episode, where we talk about all the games I bought and looked at and played, uh, I asked everybody what their big acquisition disorders were after the summer conventions. Like, you've seen all these things come out, what do you want to buy now? So a couple of interesting things came out of this. One was that at least half the people who answered this on Facebook and Twitter said, nothing really jumped out. I'm trying to downsize my collection. I don't really know. Like, <laughs> and so like the, the idea of this was like, oh, maybe we'll get like a second acquisition disorder list of things people are looking forward to. And the second part that, that I found in looking at all these answers is most of these are Kickstarters, right? So we did have a few people, like Tim mentioned Planet by Blue Orange, which I did pick up and I'll be reviewing here in the next couple of weeks. Guillermo mentions Empires of the North, the new Imperial Settlers game, which I'll absolutely be playing. Drew mentioned Black Angel, which I'm going to be reviewing next week. But then a lot of these other ones, John and Drew both mentioned Sleeping Gods. Martin mentions Predaporter. These are all Kickstarters. So we have people who are just not interested in anything. So they're just like, meh. <laughs> and part of that is like, maybe you don't go to the cons, so you're meh. And the rest of people are like, well, yeah, but it's I backed it on Kickstarter. So I guess we'll see in a few months or years when it comes out. Right. <laughs> it made me wonder, like, where are we at with hype? Right. And being at Gen Con, there was nothing like there, there was a couple of games I really wanted to pick up. But outside of Black Angel, which was like my one I wanted Thursday morning, if they hadn't had that or if they'd had plenty of them, I probably would have slept in. To be honest, there was nothing like I have to run and get this. 
So it's making me wonder, and especially like looking at the SN list now, is hype dying? Are we just going to have games you can pre-order weeks or months in advance and then a bunch of other stuff that you'll just pick up when you get around to it? Or is it just a down year? What do you think? I hate to say it, but I think it's a little bit of both. And I think in particular, as you mentioned before, Kickstarter has a lot to do with this because there was a time and not very long ago where gaming information kind of came out, you know, in slow, slow drips and drabs. And there was pictures and there was a little bit of hype that got to build, be built over time. But now it's kind of all thrown up there all at once on Kickstarter and not just the base game, but all the expansions and all the extra bits and all the promos they could possibly stick into a box. And no one's got to play the game or very, 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 very few people have gotten a chance to play the game or review the game. So all your hype, base game, the expansions, the promos, the bits, everything you can possibly imagine is there in this very short period of time. And you get to see all of it and look at all of it and have to choose to purchase all of it all at once. And then you don't hear from it for probably a year, year and a half, maybe even two years in some cases. And then eventually you get the game. So it's a very different situation than it's been previously. And, you know, we thought that eventually we would move away from Kickstarter more or less as game companies became bigger and bigger. But it seems like more and more companies are going back to it. And we're not seeing a lot of like main market releases. And that's been somewhat of a problem. And that's really warped hype, so to speak. Yeah, no, it's it's a weird thing. Like, like I said this last week on the episode, being at Gen Con, the number of booths that weren't selling anything and were just demoing stuff that was on Kickstarter, either right now or soon or like a year ago, and they'll be selling it soon. It was weird, right? It's and having been this is the fifth year I was there. It's a little bit more every year of that to the point this year where it was noticeable. So you have like Asmodee and their little group of companies that will release new games and that they don't go through Kickstarter. They don't do all this. So like Black Angel, for example, I keep mentioning that. But that was a game I only heard about a couple months ago. And then I got really excited for it. And then I had to track it down. And now I have it and I'm playing it like the normal hype cycle. Uh, but then you have like Simon announces Eric Lang's new game, the Egyptian gods game. And I'm like, okay, cool. And my hype level, it rose, but not a lot because I'm like, well, it'll be on Kickstarter in a month or two. I'll back it. I'll get everything and in 18 months and whatever, right? <laughs> like it's the same cycle and I'm used to it. It's hard to get excited about something you're not going to play for close to two years, you know? Yeah, there's no longer that search, seek out and hunt down. It's it's more along the lines of like, if you catch it during Kickstarter, great. If you don't, then it's going to really be rough. So yeah, seems about about the size of it, things these days. All right, so that's everything from our question of the week. Anthony, let's get on to the main part of our episode. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right, so speaking of uh, Kickstarter, <laughs> this is Yeto Deluxe Master Set. Uh, this is a new version of Yeto that's being released by Board and Dice. It's going up on Kickstarter in September. Uh, when I was at Gen Con, I got a chance to sit down with Philip at Board and Dice and look at the new version of the game, and he showed me what they're updating and what they're adding. And I'm pretty excited, actually, because this is a game I have in my collection, the old Pandasaurus version, and it does not get played very often for a couple of reasons. One, the the layout and the, the rules overhead is a little bit more than what I would hope for for a game of this weight and length. 
Two, the game can be pretty darn mean and it turns off a lot of people. Like it's pretty brutal in some cases. So the Kickstarter, the way they described to me is designed to address that. This is a game that takes place in between 17th and 19th century Edo period Japan. And you are playing as different clans that are completing different missions throughout the city. Uh, it's it's basically like one of the more peaceful eras in Japanese history, modern Japanese history, at least. And of course, that's only on the surface. There's a lot of things happening in the background. The game was pretty much defined almost by how you can complete all these different missions and do all these different things to generate points. But some of them were just brutally mean, right? And if somebody decided to go that route, the game could get pretty tough. The new version of the game is going to allow you to kind of set up your own experience so you can remove completely the negative interaction from the game if you just want a straight-up Care Bear version of Yeddo, if you like the mechanics but don't want to just have the take-that elements. Or you can actually make it meaner than the original if you like that part and just want to go all in. Uh, they've also updated a lot of the artwork. A lot of the components are being upgraded. They've added each of your meeples is now a unique type of worker that can do extra, like you place them to perform the, the action that you're performing, but then that specific worker have a special ability um, like the Geisha or the, the Ronin. It's cool stuff. It's all module based. Like a lot of these upgrades tend to be combined with all the visual upgrades. I'm very interested in this. Uh, the one thing they did not tell me is how much it's going to cost and looking at it, I imagine it's going to be really pricey. So my guess, and this is based on nothing they told me, is this will be like one of those 80 to $100 Kickstarters, which for a game I already own that while out of print, you could get for 50 or 60 at the time. That's a bit of a tough sell, but it is a good game. I am excited to see it back out. I hope it does well and it's priced well enough because being able to present this to different groups without it being so rough would be pretty cool. So that's Yeto. It uh, comes out next month, I think, on Kickstarter. Yeah, I had the conversation with one of the designers or publishers. I don't remember which way back when, when they when they first kind of announced this. And I asked, hey, I was a big supporter of Yedo. And I was just wondering if there was going to be some sort of conversion kit. Because I have the game. I kept it in good condition and such. And they were like, yeah, not so much. So yeah. no, not even a bit. So, and I understand that, and I'm, I don't begrudge them that. And I'm a big fan of the game. And if you remember, this is a game that goes way, way back, I think several, several years. And the funny thing when this game came out was this came out before Lords of Waterdeep. And then a lot of people connected the two games because there are somewhat similar mechanics in certain respects where you're basically completing these missions by utilizing these resources and people. And they were like, oh, no, there was this big backlash. Everyone's like, you know, Yido stole their mechanics from uh, Lords of Waterdeep, where, in fact, Yido had come out first. But as you mentioned, it was much longer. It was a little meaner. And the theme wasn't as, I, I guess, as generic or as recognizable as Lords of Waterdeep, which was a Dungeons & Dragons game. I always preferred Yido much, much more. It does run a little bit longer than necessary, but... I guess the question for me is that I do love the game and this is a similar situation that you and I recently had with Suburbia. I love Suburbia. I own Suburbia. I have all the expansions. I have the insert. What am I supposed to do? Like, am I literally supposed to rebuy the game for a couple of tweaks and some of the artwork or a couple of components? Because yeah, of course I'll do that. But at the same time, 
this is getting a little ridiculous. Like yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do. I didn't back suburbia and I feel bad about it. Cause I wanted the new upgrade, but there's no way I'm going to be able to unload my copy of suburbia with all of its stuff, you know, for anything less than a fire sale. And the same thing with, Yido. I love Yido. I would love this new version, but I'm practically going to have to give away the original version because with the new version coming out, no one's going to want the original. And the original hasn't got the press love that it deserves, even though I did give it a lot of press love way back when. So I'm just not really sure what to do. I mean, back in the day, if a game was reprinted, it was reprinted because it's been out of print for 10, 15, 20 years. And the upgrade was radically different. And now it's like, it's an upgrade, which is great. But the game's only been out of print for maybe, I don't know, five years or so. So uh, I don't I don't really know what to do with this situation here. I'm with you. Yeah. I, and it, the problem for me, too, is like I look at it and I say, like, I see all the components. They show the artwork. They show how big the box is going to be. And I'm like, this is going to be another suburbia situation. This is yeah. going to be a $100 box. Oh, yeah. Probably some add-ons they didn't even show me. And it's going to end up being like 130 all in with shipping. And while I did that for Suburbia, because that's one of my top 10 games of all time, and even then I was like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't know if I want to do this. I don't think I'll do it here. But it's still really cool that it's come. It's it's hard. Like You get excited, I'm, but at the same time, you know you're not going to pay it. I mean, I'm really, really happy that they're re-releasing this game. I'm a big fan of the game, and I, and I do believe it didn't get its proper due. So I am like 100% supportive of this as a board game reviewer and a promoter but as a gamer i'm not really sure what to do or how to feel about this the same thing with suburbia it's it's up there in my in my top list i can't think off the top head where it is but it's it's a huge game for me and i've been an advocate of it but if i buy these deluxe new versions is it going to get any more table time than it's already getting which is very limited because the way the industry is now it's the new and hotness so if I bring a game out that people either have played or know about, is it going to get cable time? So this is this is breaking me, man. I'm not really sure. I know. You, you never know when it's going to be a, like a brass situation where then everybody's like, oh, brass, let's all play brass, even though the game's been out for 15 years. Exactly. Or, or if it's just like, oh, it's a 2.0. I have that. It's fine. Yeah, oh, I played that before. But like you said, brass was shocking because I played brass when it first came out. And, like, you couldn't drag people to play Brass. The new no. version comes out, and people are like, can we play it again? And I'm just like, what is going on here? But there's been other deluxe versions, like, Takedo had this Uber deluxe version. Uber, like, fantastic, painted miniatures and everything, and nobody wanted to be bothered. So, huh? You know, I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, we will follow... <laughs> The uh, continuing situation here. Well, one game that is not a reprint, but actually, in fact, a brand new game that's coming out from Stonemaier Games is Tapestry. Now, Tapestry is a civilization building game that seems to, in I, I guess in a spiritual successor kind of way, seems to utilize some of the generic kind of building mechanics of Scythe. And yet some of the entry level game conditions of wingspan. So when you look at the, the actual setup itself, there'll be a giant civilization card that's going to give you special abilities. 
then there'll be a main player mat in which you will have an opportunity to play tapestry cards that are going to get you abilities. Once again, like Wingspan, based upon paying the resources on that board area. And then finally, there is a, I guess, best to say, kind of like a tile lane or building lane sectional board where it's kind of like the area in which you're building on. And based upon where you place those buildings and how they match up with the particular tech cards you have that will be on the side and how you flip them over, you will be able to gain special abilities. You'll be able to gain income through the game. And I guess what's really unique about this game is the fact that this game is going to have some really fantastic, super ridiculous, high quality miniatures, but not as far as guys are concerned, but as far as buildings are concerned. So this is a Stonemaier release and the first print run is going to get about 25,000 copies out there. So we might have a somewhat similar, but I guarantee not as high, you know, buzz fest as wingspan but it's going to be a limited supply it's going to be a high price so probably look around a hundred dollars for this game because the miniature sculpts are really insanely beautiful uh asymmetrical civilizations which is going to add to the gameplay as i mentioned there's going to be some kind of like map coverage point of view kind of like a feast for odin and we don't know yet too much more. It has a very small rule book, so there's not it's not a complex game, although it will be a little more complex than Wingspan, but not as complex as Scythe. And it's going to have custom inserts, and basically it's going to be a civilization game for maybe gamers who don't either have the time or have the interest in getting into a long civilization game. So this is my acquisition disorder. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Big Civilization fan, big Stonemeyer fan. And from the pictures that are on Board Game Geek, the miniatures look insanely good, which is kind of scary because I think this game is going to be at least 100, if not more. What do you think, Anthony? Yeah, I'm totally in. I mean, it's uh, it's a Civ game. It's Stonemeyer that just automatically, uh, it's all. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> I will be interested to see what the pricing is. Uh, like you said, um, Wingspan was a little bit less than I would expect. It's a fifty dollars game, uh, considering they have like the little, the little eggs in there and the, and the the dice tower and all that. I guess we'll see what all's in the box because it is very very pretty. The production quality is very high, and I guess it depends on how many he decided to print. And hopefully, it's a little bit better in terms of supply than the uh, the Wingspan situation if the price is good. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those situations where the miniatures are going to be nice to look at, but they're really not going to be necessary for that quality level. But nonetheless, we're at a point in board gaming where everything needs to be overproduced. I mean, Sleeping Gods is currently on Kickstarter by Red Raven Games, and I think they have coins with it for some reason. If you ever played a Red Raven game, there's money, but it's not really that interactive, but the coins and everything else is making the game super, super expensive. So we're in a, I, I, I think the term usually is golden age because things are very good, but I think it's also golden age because that's pretty much <laughs> what it's going to cost to buy one of these yeah. games outright gold, so to speak. All right. So that's everything for our acquisition disorders. Now let's get on to the games that have been hitting our table and we'll let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out and pick those games up. 
if those games are a play and you should sit down and play them, if those games are a dodge and you should avoid them all costs, if those games are a burn and just like the Board Game Geek new logo, you should torch it for the next two weeks. All right, Anthony, so what have you gotten to the table this week? All right, yeah, so I have a bunch of stuff, obviously, after our convention last week. Starting small this week because it's only been a few days. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with two relatively quick kind of medium weight. Well, not medium weight. That's <laughs> definitely lighter weight games, um, kind of filler level. And uh, both of these are good. So just I'll let you know whether you know they're worth picking up and what situations they're good for. But the first of them is Point Salad. It's from AEG. This is one of their big game night games. And it sold out in like two hours on Saturday morning. They didn't think they'd sell out at all. And they ended up selling out in a couple hours. The line was ridiculous. There was a lot of buzz around this from people who had previously played it, from the people who played it the night before. It's a very simple game. It is a deck of 108 cards. There are 18 of each uh, of six different types of vegetables. On the flip side of each of those vegetables, there is a different scoring condition. And the scoring conditions will be like, you know, Carrots are worth four and peppers are worth two and lettuce is worth negative one, right? But all 108 of those scoring conditions are unique. So you're going to have a tableau out for everybody at the table with three scoring conditions and six vegetable cards. And on your turn, you're going to draft either two vegetable cards or one scoring card. And you can also flip the scoring card over when you get it and just have that one vegetable. You're building out a tableau of your own stuff and you're trying to basically get scoring cards that work together uh, and will amplify the points that you have based on the sets that you put together. Uh, so like maybe you'll have one that says you get five points for every vegetable you have at least three of. So you'll want to make sure you have three or four vegetables with at least three pieces, right? But then maybe another one is you get eight points for each set of three carrots. And another one is you get six points for every carrot plus pepper plus lettuce. So now you want to make sure that the ones you have three of are the carrots, the peppers, and the lettuce because the points start to steamroll, right? The thing about the game, of course, is that there's only the one scoring card for each. So if you see a scoring card you want, you need to take it. There's not another one. There might be one that's comparable, but it's not the same scoring card. The game is really, really quick. The rules take about three minutes to teach. I just told you literally everything you need to know to play this game. You can get through a whole round of it in like 15 to 30 minutes, probably even less than that, depending on how much people are thinking. Plays up to six, which is pretty awesome. And I've kind of just thrown it in my bag now as, as a easy filler uh, because it is very quick to get out, very quick to teach and pretty benign in terms of theme. So kind of like that Sushi Go level, but even a little bit more accessible at the gamer level, just because you have those different scoring mechanisms. So this one's a buy for me. I didn't really have a game that fit this exact spot in my collection. I really like it. I really like the theme. I like, like it's almost forgettably bland, the artwork, but it works for some reason. And I just like the fact that I'm guaranteed every time I play it to get a different combination of scoring cards. So I'm always going to have a different playthrough. It's not going to, there's no like right way to do it. It's impossible. <laughs> like there's always gonna be different cards out there. So I really, really dig it. And yeah, it's definitely worth picking up point salad. Uh, second game I wanted to mention is, I guess, kind of a hidden gem, or at least I thought it was. And then I got, I got to BGG this morning, and it's number five on the hotness. So I guess other people also found it. Um, this is Amul. This was uh, a new game from Lodapellet, and then Stronghold was selling it. And the, the idea of the game is you have a market of cards. 
that everybody's going to be contributing to every round. So beginning of the game, you're going to get five cards dealt to you. You get one extra card dealt every round. And then you take one of those cards, you put it face down, it goes to the market. And then everybody drafts one card from the market. And so you do this for nine rounds. And then after you've done that, you play one of the cards in your hand, face down on the table, and then flip it over. That's now in your tableau. So some of these cards will give you points. Some of them will allow you to take other cards from like the bazaar and the palace, uh, bonus points that come out later in the game. There's contracts you can pick up. There's military cards that allow you to kind of jump forward in a turn order for drafting, which is kind of a cool mechanic. The really interesting thing of the game, though, is every card has either a table or a hand on it. If it has a table, it only scores if you play it on the table. If it has a hand, it only scores if you keep it in your hand and it's among the five cards you end the game with. If it has a table and a hand, it doesn't matter what you do with it. It will do. It will score regardless. So you have to kind of manipulate your hand throughout the game so that you have five hand cards at the end of the game and maximize your scoring. Some cards, though, also it matters what other people have. So like camels, for instance, if you play a camel, it's worth like 15 points unless other people start playing camels and then they're worth less and less points. The more camels come out gems, they're in your hand. They're worth one point for every gem you and your two neighbors have. So if you only have one gem, but you know, the guy to your right has like six in his hand. Great. Your gem is worth you know six points or five, I guess, after he discards the one. It's a lot of fun. It's really quick. I played a demo of it at Gen Con and kind of just put it on my list and picked it up. Uh, knowing literally nothing about it. This was not on my list before the convention. Just really enjoyed my playthrough. Uh, and now I've played it a couple times with my game groups. And it's a really solid game. The one thing that's really cool about it too is it plays three to eight. So it's really hard to find a game like this that is quick and accessible, easy to teach, and plays like a larger player count outside of like a you know seven wonders. This is one. So like Point Salad, I feel like this one's going to end up in my game bag pretty frequently because it's easy to play and you're always going to see different cards so amul also going to recommend this as a buy if you're looking for like a 45 minute drafting type of game for a larger player counts i don't know how it plays at lower player counts i haven't done that yet i played with six and seven and then five i think at the convention but it's really good with a lot of people so well worth checking out amul yes as you mentioned these games kind of fit a particular niche you know when we first started talking about board gaming and in particular these you know filler games they were kind of throwaway games that you just use to pass the time but it seems like as time has gone on the game designers have really put a lot more effort into the replayability so it wasn't just kind of something a throwaway kind of game it was something that you could come back time and time again and as you mentioned here too these games actually can handle a lot of different different player counts which is fantastic yeah the player count thing is huge like if i if i can get a game that can play six or seven people while we're waiting for other people to show Mm -hmm. up that's fantastic and especially if it's has just enough depth to it to people actually think you know (laughs) get something out of it that's really good all right so i want to talk about a game that had a previous release and then had a reprint release and a slight upgrade this is not like the upgrades we were talking about in our acquisition disorder this is just kind of like minor tweaks here and there some for the better and some for the worse this game is called deluvia project now the deluvia project is all about i guess if we're going to talk theme and really there really isn't any theme here but if there is 
the storyline for this game is that the Luvia Project is the first planned sky city because the Earth is overpopulated and now we need to move to the cities in the sky. And you will be one of these entrepreneurs who are building up this first sky city. And just like any good Euro game, the most victory points wins. And the game plays for seven rounds. And there is a number of player counts here. It plays basically two to four. But it does play best at four. Now, in particular, that's because while the map does have some minor conditions in which it can kind of shrink and expand, there really isn't too much there. And the action spots only just kind of shrink down if you're playing two players. But beyond that, you really want to play this game with four. It's a best at four player game. A number of different people have brought this game out. And I just continue to be surprised by the fact that People are getting this game out to the table. It recently, as I mentioned, had a re-release. So let's talk about the game. So basically, as I mentioned earlier, you're an entrepreneur and your idea here is to build up this particular sky city and hopefully score you the most reputation, which then will be able to score you as much population as possible. What's interesting about that is as you are growing in your population throughout the game, as you grow in your reputation in the game, it will trigger certain points when it hits a round number of 10 that your population will grow based upon your own individual player board. Now, your player board will grow population as you build different buildings on the map. So you will endeavor to build as many buildings as possible so that once again, when you hit 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and so on, you'll take a look at your board. You'll see where you are as far as your population is concerned. And then you will score that number of population, better known as victory points throughout the game. Now, the main mechanics in order to kind of gain this reputation, so to speak, and to grow your population for victory points has a number of different worker placement action spots. So in the first part of the game, you have a little cardboard token, which is your airship. You'll place it on a grid. And based upon where you place it, you'll be able to purchase a number of different tiles on the board. Purchasing those tiles will give you special abilities, either a one-time, an end game, or a bonus throughout the game. You will utilize those bonuses to get resources, to get spots on the board, to get extra points, to get extra population. Now, beyond that little grid situation where you're trying to pick things up, if you're playing with a large number of player count, the game gets a little more interesting because... If you got there first, you might be taking all those things, but I could also line up on that grid and get additional money because you pulled things off. Money now becomes available, but my selections become a little less. So the larger the player count, the first player marker is going to be a lot more valuable. Now, beyond that first part of the game, the rest of the game plays pretty rote. You will basically place your tokens out on the main board and you can place as many tokens on a spot as you'd like. And when you do that, what the first thing you're probably going to look at is acquiring different spaces on the board with your little cube tokens. And once you have those spaces, you need resources. And then what you'll do is go to the resource area, pick up these generic resources in order to match the building requirements that you can purchase from a market. Finally, there's a spot where you can actually place your tokens to purchase buildings or purchase fans. Fans are just these random spots on the board and thematically these are the fans that are holding up the air city 
and you could build around those areas because at the beginning of the game, everyone has to build around the main fan, but as the game goes on, you'll be able to spread out. There's also a couple spots where you can purchase from the market that you originally had a shot at at a reduced cost. There's a spot where you can switch up what the buildings will be doing. So typically at the beginning of the game, you're going to be utilizing the building for money and resources. But later in the game, you're going to build up your reputation based upon, you know, switching the cube. So your prestige is now kind of really pumping in multiple, multiple points. And there's also these kind of city forest areas, which just like Terraforming Mars, are going to score you victory points based upon the buildings it's next to. That's pretty much it as far as the game's concerned. There is a turn marker area where you can kind of jockey for position. There's a spot where you can get additional money. Generally, it's a fun game. And yet, it's a generic, weird, bland-looking type of game. It really doesn't have much presence, neither in the look of the game nor in the mechanics of the game. It's still fun, I don't know if I particularly would have purchased this game on my own. I think it's $75 retail. You could probably pick it up for $45 online. I honestly can't see myself buying the game just because while it is a good game, there really isn't anything particularly special to it that would just kind of like endear it to me to go, you know what? I am going to buy that game. You know, it, But as it stands, Deluvia Project gets a play. It's something that I recommend playing because the mechanics are tight, but thematically and presentation-wise and even mechanic-wise, it's just overall a little drab. Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, I I saw it on the table at Gen Con because it was like, oh, a Spielworks game through Tasty Minstrel. I should check this out. It's 70 bucks. It's a little bit of a discount. Looking at the board, I'm like, that looks cool. And I did a quick demo and I'm like, I think I'd like this, but I have no idea because it looks so boring and I like boring games. So it's, it's not even a bad no. thing. Like me saying boring doesn't mean anything, but it, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying and uh, it kept me from buying it. Too. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's, this game could have been any theme and, and for us, any theme doesn't really matter. So if it didn't have a theme, if it was, completely abstract at that point it really wouldn't kill the game but even the mechanics are kind of huh all right it's it's not bad but it just it doesn't get over to the point where dropping 50 to 75 dollars is something i would do for this game but if it did hit the table i would definitely play it all right anthony so that's everything that's hitting our table let's get on to our feature review so for our feature review this week we are talking about the top 10 older games that we played in 2019 These tend to be the games that you and I have probably played previously, games that are become classics in most collections, but because those games have been out for quite some time, they typically don't get the love that they deserve or the broadcast time that they deserve. Right, Anthony? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been a funny year because, like we said, not a ton of interesting things came out in the beginning of the year. I spent a lot of time playing Keyforge and then the rest of the time playing some older games that I just hadn't gotten to the table lately. Now, we don't typically review those because they're older. And so we figured, hey, why don't we put together a list of all the games that we've played this year that came out several years ago, maybe decades ago, uh, and we either have never played them or have not played them in a very long time and, and share with you some of the games, maybe just old school stuff that you 
aren't looking at because of the cult of the new, which we are very much a part of, I'm aware of, but, you know, do our part here to kind of shine a light on some older games. All right, Anthony, so you are first up. What'd you have for our number 10? All right, number 10 was a game I hadn't heard of before called The King is Dead. Uh, this is from Osprey Games and Pear Sylvester, um, who designed one of my favorite games from the last couple of years, The Lost Expedition. It is a game in which you are vying for control of Britain after the death of King Arthur. Uh, there are only eight rounds. You have only eight action cards. You get to choose when you use those action cards. So if you really want to win in one particular round, you could play multiple cards and then just later on not be able to play any cards at all. Each round, there's a specific scoring card. So one f- section of the map will score and you're trying to gather enough control in various sections of the map to be crowned the king. It's very quick, it is very fun, and it's very direct, right? It is it's a lot of solid player interaction. Gameplay is by far best at 3. It seems designed to play for 3 players. There are variants for 2 and 4, but 3 was definitely solid. Uh I think it's out of print unfortunately, uh but this is the type of game I could see coming back hopefully soon. It wasn't that long ago that they released this. And uh, yeah, it was really solid for like a three-player game that takes less than an hour. That's The King is Dead. All right, for our number nine, we have Memoir 44 by Days of Wonder Game and designer Richard Borg. Now, Memoir 44 has been around for quite some time, way back to 2004. And it is the classic command and color system where you'll be given a little bit of hand of cards. And you will select a card to play. It could be an action card. But typically, what it's going to be doing is it's going to be moving units on your board. And your board will be separated into three separate areas. It will tell you how many units you can move in what particular area. And in general, what we're talking about here is the famous historic battles of World War II. So we're talking about Omaha Beach, Pegasus Bridge, Operation Cobra. There's just a whole bunch of different battle scenarios both in the eastern theater and the western theater as well so you'll be able to bring a lot of countries to bear here you can move all the way to the pacific theater bring the japanese and the americans into play a number of different maps what's so interesting and engaging with this game is it's so easily accessible for somebody who's just getting into board games yet it offers so much complexity and historical context that even a hardcore gamer, especially a war gamer, will really love to sit down and play this game. There is an opportunity to play a eight-player version of this, this overlord scenario where four versus four and you're giving out commands. They just recently released their air campaign to this, so now you can bring in planes, which is a a really new, totally different dynamic that they haven't had previously. But... If you are one of those people like myself that grew up playing with those little green army men, you still get to do that in all of its glory. There is so many different units here. Still a great engaging game, Memoir 44. All right, number eight for me was Android Netrunner. Uh, This is the classic LCG, one of the first LCGs uh, from Fantasy Flight Games, designed by Richard Garfield and Lucas Litzinger. And it's out of print now, so it's unfortunate, but there's still a lot, a lot of cards floating around out there, which is how I finally got a chance to play this. Uh, a friend of mine picked up an original core set and a few expansions that were on sale at a local store, and we've had a chance to play this actually several times now. And I'm frustrated with myself. I didn't 
discover the game sooner because it was so much fun. Whether you're playing the mega corporation who's trying to build out this giant structure and complete these different agendas and protect itself by putting out various ice to, to block the servers from the hackers getting in, or you're playing the runner and you're building out all these different hardware, you know, attachments and equipment that are going to allow you to run through and attack the mega corporation, ideally, you know, uncover their agendas and score points. It's a really solid push and pull game with a ton of asymmetry and just so many different ways to build your decks. It's a lot of fun. It's such a shame discovering a game like this after it's already been canceled. I can only imagine, though, they have to be working on something similar. I know this game is so heavily rooted in its own theme, but just the way it works asymmetrically 1v1 uh, from these two very like archetypal uh, groups of, of different factions. Hopefully we see something similar like that again in the future. That's Android Netrunner, the card game. All right, our number seven is Caverna. Now, Caverna is becoming a modern-day classic, especially for Uwe Rosenberg. Typically, we talk about Agricola, but Caverna came along in a very interesting way because not only were you able to do the traditional farming that Uwe Rosenberg is so well-known for, but obviously you were also being able to kind of like craft out or build out a cavern to for living space for your dwarves here. In addition to that, it took what was Agricola's probably most problematic game mechanic, which was this card drafting with these really powerful occupations and minor improvements. And it created them into tiles, which were placed out there for everybody. So now you had a chance to purchase anything you wanted, create any kind of strategy, focus on one particular thing, score a ton of points, and not have to worry so much about feeding your people to the point of just overall anxiety and stress, and really just go with a strategy that felt really right for you. Now, recently, it had its own expansion and that added a little more to the game because bringing in these Lost Tribes allowed you to play the game very differently than before. It's had some little mini expansions as time has gone on, but the Forgotten Folk really kind of transformed the game. And as I mentioned, usually you were going for your own strategy. Here, you had some built-in strategy to begin with, and that was something different. That was something that a lot of fun, and you could still play the game just as it is. So caverna a long game but plays a lot of different player counts and really does earn a place at the table all right number six for me is the battle of five armies this is the sequel to war of the ring based on the battle of five armies from the hobbit uh, i picked this up five years ago when it was released by aries games and i never played it it's been sitting in my basement for years unplayed i just Never had an opportunity to play it. War of the Ring would come out before this would come out. It's a little bit shorter. It's a little bit lighter. And uh, that was a shame. So recently got a chance to finally play this game, run through it a couple times. And hey, guess what? It's actually really good. So the game is much more tactical. The map is much smaller. It's much more direct. You have to fight. Uh, it's a little bit shorter, but not as much as some people would make it seem. But it uses all the similar mechanics, you know, from War of the Ring. So it feels familiar, but the tactics you would use are very different. And I really like that quite a bit. Uh, plus, I like being able to swoop in there with the eagles or control the map with the bats. It's a lot of fun that way. It's just different. Unfortunately, this game, again, I guess a th theme here on my list, 
out of print. <laughs> um, Ares Games has a habit of bringing things back, though. Uh, they do that pretty frequently. War of the Ring will go out of print for a year or two, and then they'll bring it back. So I wouldn't be surprised to see this. They just had an anniversary edition of this game like a year ago. So almost certainly they will be bringing back uh, the game at some point in the future. This is me hoping. But in the meantime, I hope to play it many more times. It doesn't take quite the four hours of War of the Ring, maybe two to three. And uh, it's really solid. I'm, uh, again, upset I didn't play it sooner. So Battle of Five Arms. Our number five game is Dungeon Lords. Now, Dungeon Lords is a game that came out way back in 2009 by designer Vlado Shavato and Chex Games. And what was really interesting about this game was it was super thematic as far as you were one of these bad guys and here were these, you know, good heroes coming down there to mess with your evil plans, going down to your dungeon. And you were trying everything you could to be a good dungeon lord and implement monsters and traps and every bad thing you could possibly think of to stop the heroes from just messing up your evil plans. Now, Again, what was interesting about this game was it had a solid bidding mechanic. So if you wanted to be able to dig out your your dungeon, so to speak, you had to pick and be able to get as many resources as possible, picking up monsters at the market, picking up traps, all of those things. You were in competition with your other dungeon lords to get the best resources possible because there was going to be a board that's going to line up all these different heroes and those different heroes had different advantages and different weaknesses. So if your dungeon wasn't properly set up and maintained, these heroes were going to march through and destroy everything that you had. So really, really interesting, engaging game as far as what actions you take. It's very much an action selection, bidding worker placement kind of game. So as you play certain cards, they're going to go out of play for a round or two. And it's a lot of deep strategy. But at the same time, you're pressing your luck. You're bidding a very thematic game of Lotto Shavato's Dungeon Lords. All right. Number four for me was Arkwright from Stefan Ristas. Uh, came out from Capstone Games uh, also about five years ago. I have played this game in the past. I played the shorter Spinning Jenny version of the game 2016, I think. So about three, four years ago. The full game, though, I was never able to get this at the table. So recently, a friend of mine got a group together. We played it. took about five or six hours. Very long game, um, but I absolutely loved it. It is just one of the heaviest economic Euro games you can get to the table. It's dry. It looks like a spreadsheet. You're building out your different factories and trying to generate resources and trying to figure out how to sell them, where to sell them, how to jump ahead in the order so you can sell before someone else sells. It is an economy in a box and you have to know that that's what you want to play. You look at BGG and the weight is like 4.6 and it's probably accurate. It's one of the heavier games I've played in a long time, but I really had a lot of fun with it. I don't know how often I'll get to play it. I don't know if I'll even get it to the table again this year, but I very much enjoyed the play I did have recently and i'm glad i finally got a chance to play the full version of Arkwright uh with all the different mechanics all right our number three game is dungeon pets so sticking around with vlado shavato's theme here you've been a dungeon lord but now you are going to manage your dungeon pets now this is considered a little bit heavier a little more complex but it's probably his higher rated game so 
instead of your traditional press your luck situation where the heroes are going to run through and destroy everything, this game is all about these different creatures, which you will pick up from the market and then try to meet their special conditions. Now, their special conditions will be marked by the different color cards that they need. So depending on the creature, you might get something very aggressive and you have to kind of have enough security or maybe there's some magic conditions in there or just maybe you just have to meet their food and or cleaning situations. So it's a fun, interesting, dynamic game. And yet at the same time, it is a really tough to go because you are going to competing once again with your dungeon lords to get the best creatures possible, get the food and resources they need, and then be able to trade or sell off your creatures on the market at the right time to maximize the maximum number of points because it's a victory point game. It's a Yarrow game. Nonetheless, it's fun. It's dynamic. It is a little bit on the heavy side, but nonetheless, the cutesy theme will keep you coming back for dungeon pets. All right, number two for me, uh, last one on my list at least, is Indonesia. Indonesia is a splatter game. came out in 2005 originally. Uh, most recently, a new version was released. Not a huge significant component upgrade, but you know the fact that you can buy it is always a good thing. Uh, it's an economic game. Again, a big, heavy, long economic game. Uh, there's a theme here to the games I've been playing lately. In this game, players are going to acquire different production companies. So things, you'll be able to produce rice and rubber and oil and spices. And also shipping companies who will deliver these goods to various cities throughout Indonesia. Nobody really owns the companies, but as long as they're yours, you'll be able to generate money from them and and build up your points throughout the game, uh, which is money. People can, however, merge those things together uh, pull them to themselves. People have to bid into these mergers. Uh, you get paid, of course, if somebody merges your company with their own and takes it from you, but like how much and whether it offsets how much you lose. It's a very, very interesting mechanic where you have to remember you don't fully own anything until you have significant control over it. The way the map ends up working and if you're producing goods and you have to deliver them, you have to pay the shipping companies to get the goods there. But if if the shipping routes have been set up in such a way that it's very circuitous, you might not make any money at all, or you might even lose money by paying the shipping companies to get the goods to where they need to go. You have to really think ahead. You have to plan thoroughly. The game takes a really long time. So it's another one of those games where you got to be fully invested. And I'm really glad I finally got a chance to play it after such a long time. Uh, I'm hoping to get another play at some point before the rules kind of become fuzzy. But this is, probably my favorite game of 2019 that i had not played previously to this it's an older and now our number one game is a game that honestly not only did i never think that i was going to be a huge fan of this but it's been the game that's been mocked ridiculed and just generally made fun of i i guess probably the best kind of humoristic and yet full of love kind of depiction was the cones of dunshare the game, of course, has to be, and of course is, Dominant Species. Now, Dominant Species, which came out in 2010 by Chad Jensen and GMT Games, has everything that you would think about when you think of a heavy Euro game. This is a 4.03 
on the weight level here. And when you look at the board, you're like, huh, there are cubes everywhere and hexes everywhere and cones for some particular reason. And, you know, when you do the worker placement element, it's cylinders and they're all kind of the same color, more or less, as far as the team's concerned. So, huh, this does not seem like a game that's going to last, not to mention last a long time and keep hitting the table. And yet Dominant Species continues to do so. Dominant Species is all about your particular species, whether they be birds, reptiles, mammals, insects, and such. And you are growing your species and transforming and changing and evolving as different conditions are met. You are trying to utilize and place out different food sources. So you are able to adapt to the changing condition as all of that's happening. There's a whole number of tragedies and catastrophes that happen. There are these action cards in the game that really throw the game up in the air to the point where you are dreading certain rounds of those games because those cards could benefit you or could swamp you completely. Now, as the game goes on, the Ice Age is spreading and species are being knocked out. You're trying to get dominance in particular areas based upon the food level and the number of species you have in that particular spot. It is truly a fantastic game, heavy, crunching, and yet endearing all the way through. It's a lot of fun despite its super abstract theme. And if you have not played this game from 2010, you owe it to yourself to play dominant species all right so that's everything for this week until next time this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you a seat at the table together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. <laughs>